Good morning. Um, Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of our Lord. Therefore, the the word that that passage begins with, and whenever we see that word, we know it means we have to look back at what precedes it. And in this case, the writer of Hebrews has had a lengthy exposition about the, the works and about the person of Jesus Christ that have led up to this moment where he says, therefore, and then he goes into this exhortation about some things that should grow out of that truth, things we should be doing. But he wants to make that point so clearly that he, again, even after all of this, six or seven chapters of driving these points home, therefore, and he comes back and summarizes a few of those points again. So in verse 19, we read, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the most holy place, uh, he's writing to a largely Jewish audience, and they would quirk very clearly understood what he's referring to, the most holy place, the holy of holies, this inner sanctuary in the tabernacle and later in the temple, this place that symbolized the presence of God to the people of God, this place that no one could enter except for the, for the high priest, and only he could enter it on the Day of Atonement once a year to make sacrifices for the people and for their sins and for his own. This, this place where God was present, this place that they heard about, they knew about, but none of them had ever been in. This, this special place where you are in this remarkable way in the presence of God. He said, since we have confidence, and I, I admit I'm not the most confident guy. I, I tend to second guess everything that I choose, think. I've, I'm always expecting someone to find fault in something somewhere, you know. I kind of over-prepare sometimes because I'm waiting for that problem to pop up someplace. So I love this phrase, with confidence, with a sense of, you know that's where you belong. You can enter this most holy place. But he then goes on and drives home some points he's already made. You enter it by the blood of Jesus. And then I think he repeats what he's just said in kind of a different way. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Saying by the blood of Jesus, by the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, this perfect sacrifice that he has made for us, this divine sacrifice that he's made for us, we now can come into the presence of God. We enter through his body, through his crucified body, we now go through him into the very presence of God because of his sacrifice. And this writer of Hebrews has been driving home again and again and again this point, if you look in the previous chapters. He is a perfect sacrifice. He is a better sacrifice than the sacrifices they have known. And he's better, we're told, because he's a once and for all sacrifices. Those, those other sacrifices had to be made again and again and again for their sins. Not this one. 
This perfect sacrifice is made once and for all, for eternity. This is it. Uh, We're told those other sacrifices could sanctify or purify, but this one takes away sin. There's a there's difference here. There's something new about this. This one takes away sin. It completes it. That's why it's once and for all, because sin is completely abolished, trampled under, defeated by this sacrifice. This is a sacrifice not just characterized by death like the previous sacrifices. This is a living way. This time it's not only death, but the resurrection. We enter through the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, who today, even right now, is with the Father. Uh, The temporary and the imperfect are, are now made obsolete and unnecessary because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They were just a shadow, these other sacrifices of this perfect one that was to come. But then he goes on in verse 21 and says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Again, a point he's been driving home for these past few chapters. Now we have this perfect, this better high priest. You've known the other priests. You've had priests that you go to that they're your representative to God. They make those sacrifices on your behalf to God. The high priest who once a year enters that, that most holy of places to be with God, to be your representative to him, to make that sacrifice for the atonement of sins. There were many of those. Now there's just one. He describes the other high priests as they stood. There's a sense they were always active. They were again and again, day in and day out, making those sacrifices. We're told Jesus sat. He sat at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. He is not doing this again and again because that work has been completed in him. And he's with the Father. He's not once a year coming before the Father, not once a year having to first make sacrifices for his own sins before he can even represent you. He is the one who now sits at the right hand of the Father. He's our advocate, our ambassador, our representative every single day for eternity. He is the one who's with the Father, um, with the Father right now saying, Jerry is mine. Uh, He's mine, Father. He's the one who's saying, Tim is mine, Father. He's mine. Brenda's mine, Father. He's mine. I've died for them. They are mine. He says about every single one who has chosen him as, as their Savior, that he is their representative. He's there every single day. He is a better sacrifice. He is a better high priest. So he, he reminds them of those points he's been making again and again and again. And then he comes back to this point. You can have, we now have confidence to enter the most holy place. We now can come before the Father sure of the response, sure that we are welcome there, that we'll be received, that we'll be responded to with love and acceptance. We can be sure of that despite our sinfulness, despite our failures, despite our weaknesses. We can be sure when we come before the Father, we become before somebody who receives us and welcomes us in. We can know that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that perfect sacrifice, that perfect high priest, and what he continues to do. So, points that you've probably heard before, truths that you've probably heard before. Probably can't hear enough, but truths you've probably heard before. And as I thought about them, I thought sometimes we hear these things so much, we don't really let them sink in. We don't think about what that means, that we have that kind of access. And clearly the writer of Hebrews didn't think that they were letting it sink in enough. He wanted to drive it home again and again. Do you understand that you can have confidence to come before God? in the way that you've always longed for and dreamed about, that's yours. 
I thought of a story as I was reading this passage. Uh, one of my brother-in-laws years ago told me uh, that he had gone to a, an inner-city downtown department store. And it was one of these department stores with several floors that had one time been this very ornate, you know, kind of department store, the old kind that had the, you know, everything was really kind of done to the hilt in these places, very fancy. It was a little older now, but it, in its heyday, it had been the place to go downtown. And he said he was there with my sister, his wife, uh, shopping, and he was bored to death and just looking for something to do, so he started roaming around. And as he was roaming around, he walked past this room, and he looked in, and the door was propped open, and there were a bunch of couches in there and some little end tables with magazines on them. And he remembered seeing a sign for being a beauty salon somewhere on that floor, and he just assumed that was kind of the waiting area for a beauty salon because he saw a woman going in and out of a door at the other side. So he thought, well, I'm just going to go in there and sit and wait, sit in the couch and enjoy myself and wait until my wife's done shopping. So he said, I was in there 20 some minutes or more, you know, sitting on this couch reading magazines. And as I sat there, women would come in and women would go out and they would all look at me really strange as they would come in and they would go out. And you all can probably kind of guess what was going on. He had never seen a women's restroom that had a big lounge on the outside before. <laughs> Wasn't aware that such a thing existed. So he was sitting on this couch reading magazines and said these women would just keep looking at him and looking at him. And slowly his confidence in his right to be there was waning. It was sliding away, wondering why in the world are these women all looking at me? Finally, a woman came out that door and said to him, you do realize you're in the women's restroom, right? And uh, he very quickly got up. And as he left, he said he saw on the door that was propped open, women's restroom, something he had <laughs> kind of missed on his way in. He should not have had confidence in the place he was. It was a place he did not have a right to be. The writer of Hebrews is telling us this is a place we can have confidence. We don't have to question at all. We have every right to be there. When I used to oversee small groups here and would read a lot about small groups, different authors, a phrase that was real popular at that time was refrigerator rights. You would see that often in writing about small, about church small groups. And what they meant by that was your hope was that eventually a group would become so bound together, so committed to one another and so comfortable with one another that you'd be the kind of people that felt when you went into each other's home, you had refrigerator rights. You were the kind of people that when you went into their home that you could open up the refrigerator and pull out something to eat and walk away and you don't even have to ask, kind of like family members get to do. You know, most of you, if you come into my home and dig in my refrigerator, I'm probably not going to say anything to you, but I'm going to think it's a little strange. It's a little rude. Only certain people get that right, right, to be able to do that. We kind of have, I think the writer of Hebrews is kind of saying we have refrigerator rights. We're the people who belong there. We're the people who are welcome there. We are the people who are family. Maybe a better picture is the picture of the prodigal son. That, that's the picture that I think God wants us to embrace. That we now, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice, because he is our representative to the Father, that we now are those people that despite our sinfulness, despite our failures and our rebellion, that we come to God, he can't wait to embrace us, to forgive us and to restore us, to bless us, to treat us as his beloved family, the ones he loves. That's, that's the position we now have. We can have that kind of confidence as we come before God. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, because this is true, now let's do a few things. And he, he starts each of these with this phrase, let us. 
Let all of us now, because these things are true, let's act on these things in, in a few certain ways. And he gives us three ways that we ought to act on this, this reality, this incredible access we have to God. The first one in verse 22. Matter of fact, uh, before I go through these, kind of a side note that's interesting to look at, you'll find the same formula here that you often find Paul using, this faith, hope, and love. If you look through these three he gives, faith, hope, love again. Find that formula often Paul uses, faith, hope, and love, as he's describing kind of how we should step out into our world, how we should live out this reality now and here in this world, through faith, through hope, and through love. So number one, verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Again, he drives it home, doesn't he? Your, your hearts inside, you've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. You've been made clean. You've been purified. The way that the blood was used in that inner sanctum, the way that blood was used as an offering to purify, to cleanse. Well, you've, your hearts from the very inside, you've been made clean. Your outer bodies, this um, ritual of purification, it's been done to you. That your outer bodies have been made clean. Every part of you has now been made clean because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You can have confidence as you become as you come before God. And so, so the first let us do is the most obvious thing you can imagine. Because you can have confidence to come before God. Do it. The door is open. Walk in. Make the choice to draw close to God. Let us draw near to God because we can. Why in the world would we not make use of that and choose to do that? And here's how we should walk in. Sincere. The word sincere there is translated true in the King James Version. It really means just not to conceal something, to be open. So this is how we're encouraged to walk in, to draw near to God. Draw near to God with your hearts open, with everything out there. There's there's no reason to hide anything. There's no reason to pretend There's no reason to be shy about it. Walk in and who you are present before God because you absolutely know that he is going to receive you, that he's going to welcome you and embrace you and bless you and restore you. There's no reason to hide. Now, it doesn't mean that we should never ask forgiveness of our sins, but we ask forgiveness of our sins to someone who we know already is waiting to forgive us and to restore us, to someone who tells us that your sins will never be reason that you'll be turned away. Your sins still matter, but your sins now have been been covered up by the blood of Jesus. Your reception, your welcome is guaranteed here because of him, not because of you. And then he says, in full assurance of faith. So I think he's saying not only you should walk in and truly open yourself up before God, present yourself fully to him, but walk in again with your head up and seeing who it is that you're presenting yourself to. Remember who it is you come before. The one, who, the one who has presented himself as one who is trustworthy, someone in whom you could put your faith in every experience that we've read about and heard about and the experiences we've had in our own life. Someone who is worthy of that faith. I recently read a prayer by John Stott. John Stott, as most of you know, was a prolific writer but also pastor of All Souls Church in London for years. He said this was his prayer every morning. And the reason I'm reading this, because as I read this prayer, think about it. Now, this is a man who seemed to understand, who seemed to understand that I confidently come into the presence of God, that I put myself before him honestly and openly, and with my head up, I see who it is to whom I speak. I truly understand the goodness and the love that is before me. 
Listen to these words. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon me. Amen. Love that prayer. What a great way to start every day. Uh, Remind myself, God, you are here, and I'm with you. I'm before you. You receive me. I I say good morning to you just like I would turn to, to my spouse and say good morning because I expect you to be there listening to me and to hear my words and to receive me. One commentator I read said that, you know, it's, it's crazy when you read the six or seven chapters reading up, leading up to this passage to think that the, uh, the writer of Hebrews was saying, you know, um, drawing near, the, the drawing near I'm talking about is just to take 10 or 15 minutes in the morning and have some kind of daily devotions. That all that I'm talking about, this remarkable privilege that, are, that is ours, what you now ought to do is spend 10 or 15 minutes with God. That's all we're talking about. That, that he must mean more than that. This remarkable privilege that's ours, that of course that's a wonderful part of it. That is to truly turn my face towards God and really give my attention to him, if even for 10 or 15 minutes. But I think he's talking about much more than that. I think he's talking about as you walk through your day and those times when, when life's just a little hard, when you're struggling, when things are difficult, that you remember that God is here, that I have access, that I can... I can come before God in this very moment with these things I'm struggling with. Times when you have something to celebrate and you want to turn to somebody who you know will celebrate with you. Draw near to God. Turn towards him because you have access to God. Times you need help and guidance. Draw near to God. Turn to him because you have that open door. Why would you not step in? Absolutely have those times of devotion. Have those weekly times of worship. Have those things in your life. But I think he's talking about much more than that. We have the privilege throughout the day, every day, to turn to our God, to draw near to him. I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, uh, Patty and Lynn uh, on our staff here would tell you that I don't know how much the other guys' wives call, but my wife may call more than any of them. Uh, She will call throughout the day several times, and she always apologizes to them that she's calling again. I don't know why, because they don't mind. But she'll call many times a day, and Lori's calls will often be... um, I'm just checking in. What's going on? You know, and I'll say, uh, not much, you know, what's going on. And tell her a little bit. And other times she'll call and she'll tell me something really cool just happened. And I want to tell you about it. Sometimes she'll call me and say, I got a question. I'm not sure what to do with. Boy, something really bad happened. I want to tell somebody about it. Sometimes she wants to celebrate with me. Sometimes she wants to mourn with me. Sometimes she just kind of wants to check in and see what's happening. Again, if most of you did that, I mean, it'd be kind of cool if once in a while you just checked in and see what was happening. But if you did that on a regular basis, that would be kind of weird. I would say, yeah, I got some other stuff to do, you know. I really don't mind when my wife does that. In fact, I like when my wife does that. And my wife knows she has that kind of access. 
Uh, Patty and Lynn know when Lori calls, unless I'm meeting with somebody, and it's one of the, I'm in an appointment. And even then, they kind of know if it's really important enough, she gets to break in in the way nobody else gets to break in. She knows she has the right to that kind of access, that our relationship is such that she gets access no one else gets, and she should. That's the kind of access that we're told. Make use of that access. Turn to him often. We have someone who can't wait to hear and celebrate and restore and lift up and encourage and guide. Why in the world would we not turn towards him? Second thing he then says. Next he says, because of this truth of what Christ has done, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Now remember, he's writing to some people who are under some persecution. People going through some hard times. And he's saying to them that you're going to be tempted. This hope that you've hold on. And, and the hope here is not just the feeling, but the reality. These truths that have given you hope. These promises that you hold on to. These promises of that day that's coming when you have full and complete access to the presence of God. That you'll experience it completely in every possible way. That you will know what it is to completely live under the rule of God. That you'll know the kind of shalom that you hope for. That promised reality that you hold on to now and you hope for and you live towards. He's saying, hold on to that. Don't let go of that. Because as times get hard, you'll be tempted to let go, to loosen that grip. And sometimes you'll be tempted to grab onto something else as your hope, the thing to get you through. And he's saying, don't let go. Hold unswervingly to that hope. So message has been sent in again and again through the letter of Hebrews. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 6, But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence in the hope in which we glory. 3.14 we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. 4.14 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And then in 6.19 We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Don't you love that passage? We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. This is the firmest, most secure anchor you can hold on to. Why in the world would you let go and grab onto something else? And he says that your faith is not just in the promises. And I think I get lost in this sometimes. Sometimes my faith is in, in these things that I'm hoping to come true, these promises that I'm waiting for their complete fulfillment of. And sometimes I don't really see those things taking place. A promise that God is listening to me. And sometimes I don't know. I don't, it's not visible right now that you're listening to me. I don't, I'm not hearing a response. I'm not seeing necessarily how that's getting through. Is it getting through to you? This promise that God is with me and that, that his kingdom has come and things are moving towards that day. I don't always see that. Sometimes it seems like we're moving away from that day. These many promises that I want to hold on to, I say sometimes it's hard to hold on to those promises because I don't really know if I see evidence of them coming true. But here he says that your faith is not just in the prompt. Your faith is in the one who made the promises. The one who promises. That's who your faith is in. So think about him. Think about your experience of him in your own life. Think about the stories you've heard from others about him. Think about the stories from scripture. Think about the ways he has revealed himself. Who is he? Your faith is in the one who has made those promises. And has he shown himself to be faithful? Has he shown himself to be somebody trustworthy? I'd say stand him up against anyone else that you want to grab hold of and put your trust in. Stand him beside. Anything else you want to put your hope in, whether your hope is in 
the teaching of another, whether your hope is in somehow your own success or your hope is in a certain, if I can make certain things in my life come together in a certain way, who is behind that hope? Who is the one that you're really grabbing hold of? Put any of them up beside him and those stories of his faithfulness. Now, who do you want to grab hold of? Who has shown themselves most to be trustworthy and faithful? Why in the world would we let go and grab on to something else? Finally, he says, because we can confidently approach God, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The word consider there doesn't mean just think about ways to uh, get people to do loving good things. The consider there is really the people. The object of consider there is one another. And, and the word consider there is not just give a moment's thought to. It's, it actually appears one other place in Hebrews, and there it's translated fix your thoughts upon. What he's really saying is really stop and think about other people. Think about one another. Because of what Christ has done, we are now free to do something that we probably really couldn't do before. We were always so consumed with ourselves. We had to take care of ourselves. We had to worry about how we present ourselves. We had to, we had to fight to protect ourselves and our image. You're free now. You have access to God. You, you can reach out to him anytime you need and know that there's someone there who loves you and wants to do good towards you. You have that. You are now free to consider others in a way you never could before. So consider one another. Truly think deeply about the other. We're not talking about just sitting in a mall and being a people watcher. We're talking about actually think about the other that you interact with. Consider one another. But this isn't just considering for the sake of considering. Because this considering falls between two things. It's, it's consider moving towards something, right? Not falls between. It's consider moving towards something. And what's interesting, he says, consider so that you might spur one another on towards loving good deeds. So the goal is loving good deeds. But in between there is that word spur. The word spur is actually a pretty intense word. It doesn't look like it in our English translation, but it's a pretty intense word. It actually means to provoke or to irritate. It's, it's not just spur as in, yeah, I've kind of give you a little push that way. It's being irritant. Be someone who considers the other. You want to move them towards love and good works. And how are you going to do it? You're going to irritate them there. You're going to provoke them to go that way, right? You're going to so disrupt their life that they're going to be tempted to move that direction. It's not how we often think about it. Consider them deeply. And again, it's not just being just any kind of irritant. Some of us are very good at being irritants. That's not necessarily tough. If you ask my wife, she would say there are times I can be a wonderful irritant. I can do that very well. Uh, but many times that has to do with me. It has nothing to do with anybody else. Here, irritant falls in between. Consider the other. Really think about them. And love and good deeds. And I love how love and good deeds are so often put together in Scripture. As you've heard me say many times, I think Scripture constantly is saying good acts, moral acts, righteous acts, good deeds, that they are always tied in with relationship. They are always about loving God or loving the other. There's always some relational purpose in them. So do these good and loving deeds that grow out of considering others. How do I get you there? I irritate you. I irritate you towards it. I provoke you towards it. I disrupt your life in some way that will help you move that direction. We have a wonderful, several wonderful examples of that in the life of Jesus. Many times he would be a disruptive force in the life of others. 
in a way that you knew he saw them. Think of the woman at the well. You knew he saw and he understood her in a way nobody else did. And he was disruptive. He kind of shook things up in a way that encouraged her to move towards loving good deeds. You see it in the story of the rich young ruler. Again, where he understood him and knew him in a way that everybody else was missing. He understood him. He considered him. And he was disruptive. He disturbed him in a way that helped, hopefully, to move him towards love and good deeds. That's what we're called to do, actually, with one another. And I, t- I don't like being an irritant that much. I mean, there are times I do it, but I don't usually like the results of it. Because usually people aren't drawn towards me when I'm an irritant. Usually if I'm a disruptive force, people aren't thrilled that I am. So I don't always like doing that. But Scripture says that because of the access we have to God, we know we don't do this alone. We know not only our own needs being met, but also he's in this with us. He's fighting for them just like he fights for us. Be a force that, that works to help move people towards love and good deeds. And then he goes on and gives us a little more description of what that might look like. There are actually two more let us statements. Uh, because of the sentence structure, we'd say that that's probably just a continuation of what he's just said about considering others and spurring them towards love and good deeds. So these probably aren't two new ones, but just a continuing of how you do this. So he goes on in verse, um, boy, I need glasses. I can't even see which verse. 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So how do we go about the spurring on? Well, real practical sense, you actually got to spend time with each other. You actually have to be around each other once in a while. If you're going to consider the other and know them in such a way that you can be effective in helping them move towards love and good deeds, you got to spend time. You actually have to focus on one another, which means meet together regularly, spend time with each other, invest in each other's lives. To think that I can really have an impact without any investment, it's just craziness. Uh, many times I've had people speaking in my life that may have been truth. And again, I'm not saying I shouldn't have listened. If it's truth, it's truth. But it was a lot harder truth to listen to because I really didn't see any investment in me, any consideration of me, any time and concern for me. That's a little harder to listen to. I remember once I, got, I had candidated at a church uh, to be a youth pastor, actually before I came here. And when we got home, I had, I had turned down that position, didn't feel it was a good fit. Well, the senior pastor wrote me a five-page letter, a five-page letter critiquing me, telling me things that I needed to consider about myself. It felt a little bit like angry that I turned the position down. But to tell you the truth, as I read through the letter, there were a lot of things that were true. There were absolutely some true things in there. It probably took me three years to be able to see there were some true things in there because I really felt like I don't see this as growing out of concern for me or love for me or care for me or really even knowing me. It's a little harder to receive it. It's not that it still might not have had some value for me. But, boy, it's hard to receive if you're not invested. John Piper's a pastor that sometimes I agree with, sometimes I don't agree with. But in this case, I really agreed with him. This is something he wrote to his church um, out of this passage. He said, if you ask what that corresponds to in our church, I would say the closest thing is small groups, which is why I regard this ministry as so utterly crucial. I'm a great believer in preaching. There's something about the word of God that begs to be heralded and trumpeted and exalted over as well as discussed and taught. But I have no illusions that preaching is enough in the life of the believer. The New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, calls us again and again to a kind of mutual ministry that involves all believers in encouraging others. 
And that's the second thing he says here. Meet together. Do that. Do that regularly. But also encourage one another. And again, the word encourage seems to come back and say what he's already said. Spur one another on. Because encourage includes more than just say nice things. But I do want to highlight it includes say nice things. Sometimes we think encourage is only admonish and teach and correct. Let's say it also includes affirm. Sometimes the way we best help people move in a positive direction is we affirm what we already see happening. We affirm the good and the positive, the ways that God is already working in their life. And we say, I see it and it's good. I read the results of a study recently of 2,000 employees that were interviewed. And they were interviewed for the purpose of finding out what would motivate more work out of them, what would help them be more committed to their work. The, the researchers in this case summarized that they found that the most important thing that was missing that would motivate more work out of these employees would have been more affirmation, more appreciation of what they were already doing. That there's something about knowing that you've noticed what I've done and it's good and that you care about it and you appreciate it that actually motivates us to do it more. I, I see this in Paul's writings again and again. I mentioned this in a staff uh, devotional the other day. That when you go through the epistles that Paul wrote to the various churches, he starts out in the same way in almost every one of them. I think other than maybe one or two, he starts out with these words of affirmation. And what's interesting is they're uniquely crafted for each church. They're not just kind of my, my canned thing I start off with. He's thought about each church as he spoke these words. Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Philippians 1. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Colossians 1. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. Um, last one, and then we could read them all, but I'll just do one more. First Thessalonians 1. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And again and again, he starts out his letters that way by saying a couple of things stood out as I read that. One is he is thinking about these people. He's considering them. These hundreds of people that he's interacted with, he regularly is stopping to pray for them, to consider them, to bring them before God. Uh, This is really thinking about these people. And then when he writes to them, he always starts off by saying, and I see God doing some good things in you and through you. And he verbalizes that. He wants them to know it. He goes on and he teaches and he corrects and he admonishes. He does all that. But he also lets them know God is doing some good things. And he's doing some good things in you and for you and through you. And I don't want that to be missed. I think we miss that too often. Too often we get to what needs fixed. And and I'm one of the worst about that. Too often I'm paying attention to what needs fixed and not paying attention to what already is happening, what is already good. And often that is the stuff that most makes us want to say, that is good. That is a reason to praise God. That is wonderful. I want more of that in my life, not less of that. Uh, we can all do that better for one another, I think. There are a few people in my life who are great about that. A few people, every time you see them, they are just those kind of encouragers, you know. And you know it's not the encouragement. They just like to say something nice. It's the words you can tell were thoughtful words. They really thought before they spoke them. 
They, you know that there's something that's true in them that connect to you. I'm just saying sweet nothing. This can be kind of the salesman kind of thing. I'm just trying to get a response out of you I want. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the kind that considered truly what's going on with you. And then I speak those words. I say them out loud. I think those are powerful words. So I say all this today because this doesn't sound like a very Christmassy sermon. But I, I chose to preach on this today because I was thinking this is a time of year when we stop and we often consider our life. This is a time of year when we, going into a new year, often think about things that we want to change and things that matter to us that maybe we want to commit to more. And, and as I was thinking about this the last couple of weeks, I thought, I think the writer of Hebrews would say to you, boy, if you're really going to stop and reflect on your life, you're really going to stop and consider the things that matter. There is nothing that matters more than this. What Jesus Christ has done in your life that has now opened up this door to this access to the presence of God. This is just a remarkable reality. So let us then live it out. Let us then make choices that grow out of that. Um, if we're going to make resolutions, make resolutions that have something to do with those, those truly meaningful core realities. There's nothing wrong with resolutions to lose weight and all that. That's fine. But let's not miss those things that truly matter, truly matter for us and the things we care about. Let's pray. Father, uh, we just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for the remarkable love um, that was reflected in the sacrifice of your son. Father, we thank you that despite our sinfulness, our unworthiness, despite our rebellion, Father, that you receive us in, uh, that we have this remarkable advocate in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you. In your blessed name, amen.